This evening I'd like to speak about healing ill will. In our hearts we long to be connected, to be loved, to be accepted. We long for intimacy and trust and closeness. And yet really too often we can feel this painful and almost bewildering sense of apartness and disconnection. And this underlying feeling of division and separation that can run through our lives gives rise essentially to all the pain and all the sorrow we can experience in this life. Loneliness, heartache, anxiety, alienation, helplessness, incompleteness, They all have their roots in this aching sense of being alone, being fearful, being separate. A Christian mystic once said that anxiety is the mood of ignorance. That anxiety is the mood of this sense of disconnection. It is right for us to ask the question, what is the way out of a fractured life? What is the way out of this painful sense of separation? I think it is a question we need to treasure very, very deeply. The Buddha certainly spoke of the many, many causes of suffering. And when we look at our world, I'm sure the causes of suffering we can see are far too long to list. But also the Buddha spoke of the way out of suffering in a much simpler way, a profound and a challenging way. And he said the way out of pain and sorrow is to find the way to heal the ill will and the delusion and the misunderstanding that arises from ill will. One way spoke of this path was essentially as a path of liberating the heart of Chetovamuti. And he described the heart that is liberated from ill will as a heart that rests in a boundless loving kindness and appreciation, compassion, and equanimity. In this path, it is a teaching of love. It's not a teaching of hate. It is a teaching of love that is born of wisdom. And it permeates the whole of the path and the whole of the teaching. And in truth, this teaching of love also needs to permeate the whole of our own practice. The first great precept is to refrain from harm, to protect and to treasure the well-being of all beings. And this first great precept and the teaching of loving-kindness, and the teaching of wisdom are not three different teachings. They are one teaching. Ethics 
is sometimes described, the Buddha described it as words of loving kindness, acts of loving kindness, and thoughts of loving kindness. And he described loving kindness as a mind of boundless warmth and friendliness, free of ill will. Essentially, the teaching of ethics and the teaching of loving kindness are all directed towards uprooting ill will, towards uprooting fear and aversion. The qualities, the experiences that so deeply fracture all of our life. Now, this path of cultivating that which is wholesome is not meant to limit or to confine us, but to free us to find an awakened heart without boundaries and without limits. The first great precept in loving kindness describe a wholesome and liberated way of being that arise from the ground of profound understanding. And in its deepest way, that understanding is expressed in compassion and wisdom. It is an understanding of interconnectedness and an understanding of interdependence. Stephen Mitchell once wrote that the path of wisdom and the path of love lead to the same garden. I think we undertake the training of the first precept and the training of loving-kindness to encourage the flower of wisdom in our own life moment to moment. And it is a training that is meant to awaken us from delusion and to free us from suffering. Now, I think it is first really appropriate to make a distinction between ill will and anger. Now, anger can be an expression of ill will. When we are feeling fearful or outraged or indignant or insulted, the first thought or the first feeling that arises in that moment is very rarely wanting to protect or to promote the well-being and the happiness of the person who has offended us. Anger can rise from ill will and it can lead from ill will, but not necessarily so. I think it's probably true to say that anger that has been allowed to dwell in the heart unattended will, with time and with repeated visits, it will harden like cement and it will turn into ill will. I think we know in our own experience, someone hurts us, someone offends us, you know, and and it's over, like the event has passed but it can remain so lodged in our mind and in our heart. And if, although the event is over, if it is bereft of forgiveness, if it is bereft of letting go, then what happens is we find ourselves chewing and chewing over that event that's lodged in our mind. We visit it like a sacred shrine. You know, we make pilgrimages to it. And in doing that, it will, it will for sure, harden and deepen and with repeated visits become impenetrable until we have an enemy. Someone we feel is our enemy. Ill will, though, is much broader than anger. 
Ill will includes envy, it includes covetousness, it includes resentment, it includes prejudice, it includes cruelty. Ill will includes harsh and demeaning speech, it includes the ways that we can withdraw affection and acceptance. Ill will really speaks to those painful inner tides that cloud our minds and that poison our hearts. And each moment of ill will, if we really examine it in our life, makes a separation between I and you bigger and bigger. Now, anger can be inappropriate, and there's a way in which anger can be appropriate. When we face the level of injustice and oppression and prejudice in our world, when we face all of the ways that people are harmed or injured or damaged, we see this and it touches us and it awakens us. And it really needs to. It really needs to. You know, if we're not touched and awakened there is no ground for compassion to arise. And when we look at the terrible tragedies in our world, whether it's in, you know, Darfur, or whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq or in Chechnya, you see what what do they all share. It's tremendous, tremendous tides of ill will. I think it is also true to say that very, very few of the much-needed social and political transformations that have really changed our world for the better, many, many of these wouldn't have happened without appropriate anger. You can imagine if the first suffragettes had just said, well, no vote, no problem, you know? You can imagine if Gandhi had stood out and said, you know, a little oppression, never mind, you know. Or if Martin Luther King, you know, had kind of stood out and said, you know, oh, a little racism, not a problem. It has been needed in the social and political transformations of our world that there is appropriate anger. In fact, the Dalai Lama says, has said, that appropriate anger can be the beginning of powerful words and altruistic gestures and acts of healing that relieve suffering. But it's a dicey thing, isn't it? Because we'd like to think of all of our anger as being appropriate. (laughs) Wouldn't we? We That's how we would like to see it. You know, it's all, you know, absolutely warranted. You know, because with most anger comes a sense of righteousness and self-righteousness. We are so sure of our ground, but it's really not true. So it's really good to look at what is the difference between appropriate and inappropriate anger. How do we know that it's appropriate anger? First of all, that anger will motivate us to reach beyond the boundaries of self. That appropriate anger will motivate us to reach out to relieve suffering and to ease pain. 
perhaps through the gift of fearlessness that is spoken of in this tradition, to protect, to be a refuge to those who have no refuge, to say no to the causes of suffering, to be a friend to those who have no friend. Secondly, we know it is appropriate anger because it doesn't leave many residues, footprints in the mind of guilt, of remorse, or of blame. Appropriate anger doesn't hang hang around like a soiled napkin, you know, that says, oh, I really wish I hadn't said that, you know. I really wish I hadn't done that. I really wish I hadn't acted in that way. Thirdly, we know it is appropriate anger because it arises in the light of the precept of non-harming and of loving-kindness. It is not anger that adds to the mountain of suffering. It is not appropriate anger has no self-benefit. The heart stays open. There is no wish to harm another. And I personally feel sometimes that there can be too little appropriate anger in this world that can lead us at times to accept the unacceptable, to accept the, the violence, the war, the poverty, the prejudice in our world. Sometimes we almost shield ourselves from appropriate anger out of fear. You know, maybe we've had long histories of being exposed to inappropriate anger. So we're afraid of any kind of anger at all. The worst thing anybody ever, ever said to me in an interview was when a woman said to me that the practice had helped her to bear an abusive relationship. I spoke with a man whose brother had a terminal illness, and as he became more ill, he became increasingly enraged with his family, striking out at them. And the man who was a meditator, he said to me, he was really proud of his detachment. And I felt like kicking his butt. (laughs) I said, come on. You know, there is a time to be still and there is a time to act. There is a time to be engaged. Inappropriate anger, though, arises from the ground of ill will, and it will deepen ill will. Inappropriate anger has the wish to harm, and we know that in our hearts when that's true. Inappropriate anger leaves many, many residues in the mind. It will play over and over and over again the same song of resentment, And no matter what words are spoken, the resentment lingers. Inappropriate anger never heals. In fact, it solidifies the division between self and other. And it perpetuates suffering rather than ending it. And I think further and perhaps most important, inappropriate anger has no commitment to liberate our heart or to liberate the heart of another from ill will. I feel that ill will is the most difficult of all the afflictive emotions to be free from and to deeply understand. I mean, just think of any 
any place in your life with any person that you bear ill will towards, and you get a sense of really how hard, how challenging it is to really have a heart that is free of ill will. In fact, I would say ill will is probably the root of most of our afflictive emotions. And it's why we practice. It's why it's so needed, the tenderness and the care and the attention. First, I think it is really important to imagine. To imagine a heart that is liberated from ill will. Not that it's just calm around it. It's important to imagine a heart in which ill will does not arise and does not take root. And I think we are asked to imagine that in this teaching and in this practice. The Buddha said, If it were not possible for you to do this, I would not ask it of you. If liberating yourself from ill will would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask it of you. But as the only outcome of abandoning ill will is happiness and freedom, I ask it of you. Cultivate the good, loving kindness, non-harming. It will bring only happiness. I think... Perhaps many, many people can imagine or accept that they can find some equanimity or restraint with ill will, enough restraint not to act it out. I think many of us can imagine finding enough restraint that we ill will in our life does not lead us to go rampaging through the world, shouting at people and throwing chairs. But the prospect and the possibility of cultivating and abiding a heart that is truly free from ill will, I think, is a truly more profound and daunting aspiration. And we might question whether it's even possible. But then that's like questioning whether liberation is even possible. In South Africa, when they had the truth and reconciliation meetings where someone, a torturer, would sit across the table from someone they had tortured. When someone had killed, would sit across the table from the family of the son or daughter who had been killed. When the jailers sat across the table from people who had been imprisoned, Archbishop Tutu said of those meetings, he says, it's as if we are standing in sacred ground in this room. We should take off our shoes and bow. Something holy has visited us here. In truth, I think the cultivation of the first great precept and the cultivation of loving-kindness. Hold the whole of the teaching and the whole of the path within them. They ask for generosity, for patience, for tolerance. They're all part of that journey. So too is concentration. So too is inner stillness. 
the willingness to attend to all the small moments when the seeds of ill will are fed. In the Tibetan tradition, it's said, do not think it doesn't matter. All those small moments when we flinch and recoil with aversion or when we tell ourselves a story of aversion. And do not think it doesn't matter. All the small moments when we consciously nurture the seeds of loving kindness and understanding and care, thinking they don't make a difference. The path of liberating our hearts from ill will also holds very profound understanding of both the nature of self and the emptiness of self. In reality, the moments of ill will in our life are the moments when we see the sense of I, the sense of me, most powerfully. And the moments of loving-kindness and harmlessness are also the moments when this sense of me, this sense of I, fades away most, when we rest most deeply in a sense, a deep understanding of interconnectedness. It would be naive and dishonest to imagine that, you know, we're going to have in our path some magical moment where we have an amazing breakthrough and there's never going to be ill will ever again in our lives. The cultivation of the first precept, cultivation of Loving-kindness is really a moment-to-moment practice of kindness, of compassion, of wisdom. The Buddha used the metaphor of the way a mother or a father would protect their only child with constant vigilance and mindfulness and love. As another metaphor I'm going to use, this has been kind of used by many, many different people, but uh, some of you see the documentary, The March of the Penguins. Anyway, for those of you who didn't really see it, if you can, it's really amazing. But it's the story of these emperor penguins and this incredible journey that they make where, you know, the mother, the, the penguins waddle off, you know, 70 miles just to lay an egg. You know, I must say, this is, you know, <laughs> this is in blizzards and ice, you know. They go for 70 miles. It takes them ages. You know, you know how penguins go, you know. They don't, really, they don't go very fast, you know. It's like they really go slow. 70 miles is a journey. No food, freezing. And then the mother penguin lays the egg, and, and she's starving by this point. You know, so she hands the egg over to the father penguin to keep warm while she treks another 70 miles back to the ocean to get a few fish. And the father, the father sits with his penguin balanced on his feet for three months <laughs> with no food in the midst of blizzards keeping this egg warm, carefully day by day, balancing the eggs on the top of his feet until it hatches, and one unmindful movement, and that egg topples off and the chick dies. Now, this is the kind of devotion. (laughs) 
This, to me, is the kind of vigilance and the kind of devotion we need to protect our hearts from the wounds of ill will. Imagine if we could have that kind of devotion to protect our hearts from the wounds of ill will, to nurture in our own hearts, to give birth in our own hearts to the flowering of loving kindness and wisdom. Now, most of us, we think it sounds good. We'd all love to be free of ill will. It is so painful. But then we think, well, there's what's one person. <laughs> one person. Is there anybody here? Does, maybe some of you here don't have one person. And we think there's one person that we're going to harbor, keep harboring aversion for. One person who we're unwilling to forgive who we would like to forsake, and we think it doesn't matter. But in this tradition, it is also said, it only takes a single spark to set a light a mountain. Unless we truly have a commitment to uprooting ill will, we will not have the choices about when and where that ill will arises and lands. And in truth, in my understanding, we do not have the luxury of fostering ill will. It poisons our hearts. We might think of withholding loving kindness from some aspect of ourselves, some aspect of our own bodies, our own minds, our own hearts. We think, well, I can embrace everything with loving kindness and harmless except this bit of me. Yet, in that withholding, we are giving sustenance to the seeds of ill will. As I mentioned the other day, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. All the small moments when we reach out to protect another, to care for the well-being of another, they also matter. As it's said by the same teacher, the great oceans are filled drop by drop. All the moments when we offer to ourselves generosity and tolerance and patience, we are nurturing our capacity to realize boundless kindness. Ashantideva, a great, great teacher of the past, He said that there are two primary insights that are necessary for the flowering of compassion and loving kindness. He said the first of these insights is to know deeply, really know it deeply, the suffering and the pain of ill will. Part of us does know this, you know, even the small moments when we feel aversive or intolerant or irritated. You know, we experience there are all ways that we banish ourselves from happiness, from peace in that moment. We're never happy and aversive at the same time. We're never calm and irritated. They don't coexist in the same moment. But I think we also know the deeper pain of ill will, the loneliness and the isolation, the terrible burden that we can carry through our lives when there is someone that we cannot forgive. 
someone that we deeply resent or fear or dislike, it's like a poison that consumes us from within, and it shatters our capacity for ease. Now, these long historical stories of ill will, they only survive because we continue to nourish and stimulate them with our thought and with our dwelling. And you can see that the story and the ill will go round and round in circles. And with each cycle, it gets tighter and older until it's as if we are held within the tightness of that circle, like a fist holding a stick. And after a while, we're not even telling the story of ill will. The story is telling us. Someone once said, holding on to ill will is like burning down your house to get rid of a rat. To have even one person in our life that we hold with ill will is actually to bind ourselves to suffering and to samsara. We also we all know the painfulness of forsaking anyone or forsaking our own heart. But I have to say, there's also a part of us that doesn't want to know this. You know, culturally, we can see increasingly that it's pretty trendy to be enraged. You know, it comes with a sense of entitlement. You know, it comes with a sense of me when, and all the ways that people try and find to legitimize their rage and say it is actually your fault. You know, so these ridiculous, you know, road rage that leads to death. You know, supermarket rages. People have shopping cart rages. Where I live, there's a lot of surfing beach, and there's surf rage. You know, where it becomes my wave. Pretty extraordinary delusion. But then aversion, we have to say, really has a good deal of delusion in it, doesn't it? Because we feel like, It shields us and protects us, and it's easier to say it's your fault than to open to the simple truth that ill will is so painful. And I think if we really open to how true that is, how painful ill will is, it can feel almost impossible to bear. The second part of this insight of understanding the suffering ill will is to know equally deeply the effects of generating ill will, how it creates a mandala of suffering that harms others and harms ourselves through our thoughts, words, acts, choices that may be harsh or demeaning or cruel or dismissive. There is no joy, no happiness, No trust that is born of any of that. Only fear and a deeper sense of separation. It is not in our friendships that we feed and trust our our capacity to liberate our hearts from the suffering of ill will. The places where we really learn to liberate our hearts from the suffering of ill will are in the places where we're most resentful, and most fearful, in the places where we feel our hearts have turned to stone. I'd like to read you something a woman wrote 
out of journey she unfortunately sadly had to go through in her life when she spoke of her journey from pain to compassion after the abduction and disappearance of her sister when she was 16 years old. For 20 years, she and her family lived with the torture of not knowing what had happened and an ongoing anxiety that never slept. Her sister's bones were discovered in the cellar of a serial killer. This happened in England. She talked of her growing need to find a way to peace without denying the human atrocity. Attending the trial of her sister's killers gave her little satisfaction. She said her journey towards peace began with murderous rage. And she realized that she was capable of killing in that rage. And she also knew that she couldn't ever dismiss anyone who acted out of a fury like she was experiencing. Her first step towards healing was in finding the courage to speak the truth of her sister's life and her terrible death, finding those who were able to listen to the horror of her sister's torture and eventual murder without flinching. Bottomless grief followed an ocean of tears, and then she said self-pity. She spoke of a meditation when she felt that the ocean of her tears was filled with everyone who'd ever experienced loss through violence, Holocaust victims, people in Rwanda, and all the atrocities of the world. Somehow the raw pain began to subside, and she found herself able to be still in the midst of pain, and she spoke of her questioning of what to do with such unbearable suffering. Not being connected with the pain or being able to express it, she said, would have led her to depression and suicide. And acting it out would just lead to more brutality and harm. The profound insight she came to was to inch toward forgiveness. Returning to her meditation cushion, she found herself reflecting on the life of her sister's killer, Locked away, demonized, isolated, and estranged from his own children. In fact, he actually did kill himself in prison. She found herself able to feel the tragedy of this life, too. She said that her preference is to think of forgiving as an ongoing process rather than a static state. Forgiving, she said, was not only for her sister's killer, but for her own children and the next generation. Shantideva, he said it a little differently. He says the person who has hurt you, disparaged you, insulted and offended you, place them as you would your spiritual teacher with respect on the crown of your head. This is the practice of compassion. So the first insight is to understand the suffering of ill will to understand the suffering of generating ill will. The second insight that lies at the heart of understanding the freedom from ill will is to deeply understand where ill will arises from. In Tibetan, the word for ill will, I believe I've been told, is mental discomfort. 
sounds very mild, doesn't it? <laughs> but then I understand in Tibetan there's two words to describe emotion. One is happy and the other is sad. And ill will is sad. Now, mental discomfort is certainly what happens when we feel hurt or dismissed or unfairly treated by another. Ill will arises out of a sense of injury. Our sense of self feels injured. So we seek to separate and distance and protect ourselves. Sometimes this is wise. It is not necessarily wisdom to keep, you know, lying down in front of a person who you know is going to stand on your head. But we see that the habit of separating and distancing makes us fearful. And very often what we do is we take the person who have harmed us with us in our thought. The first great precept in loving kindness is to protect the miracle that life is. Dedicated to cultivating trust, understanding, and love, and to know what it means to embody this in all of our relationships. And we must know, too, how to embody this in relationship to our own hearts and minds and bodies. Too often, actually, we are cruel and disrespecting and rejecting of ourselves. And actually, we can do it so often that we don't even notice anymore how much we have withdrawn love from ourselves, harming ourselves again and again, much in ourselves that feels difficult to embrace, our body, our appearance, pain, illness, states of mind that we disdain, thoughts we reject, we even hate our ill will. We even hate our ill will. But refusing to embrace this is a way of harming ourselves. Non-acceptance is, in truth, an act of ill will. Self-judgment, denunciation, rebuking, self-negation, we have forgotten the first great precept to protect the well-being of all beings. We can change the tide of ill will. Everything that appears in our bodies and minds is a manifestation of life, asking for our respect, our protection, asking for our understanding. Learning the art of not forsaking ourselves, finding the generosity and the patience and the tolerance, this is the fabric of ahimsa the fabric of non-harming. Instead of fleeing mental discomfort, we learn to listen to it, to, to know that it is asking us to stay close. Mental discomfort is asking for our understanding. We learn essentially that the path of mindfulness is to be equally near, equally respecting of all things. And we begin to see that in the small moments of ill will, you know, the annoyance, the irritation, the aversion, we hear the small mutterings of self. And in the places of deepest ill will, we hear the whole orchestra of self. 
can there be ill will without this pronounced sense of me, of I? I don't think so. Who is injured? Who is fearful? Who is enraged? The bigger the ill will, the louder the self. What is really good to notice is to see how the solidity of self and the solidity of the sense of other grow simultaneously. Our injury and our enemy grow together, are bound together. To liberate ourselves, we must also be willing to liberate our enemy. And I think in the deepest understanding of loving-kindness, we do understand that to liberate our enemy is to liberate our own hearts. To find the courage to befriend that mental discomfort is to find the way of being free from that discomfort. The first great precept of non-harming and the path of loving-kindness, they have almost like three steps within them. And certainly the first step is restraint. Restraint is different than suppression. Suppression we don't want to see. Restraint we are willing to see, but we are unwilling to engage in that which causes or perpetuates suffering. So restraint is important. Instead of reacting or impulsively annihilating the small insects that annoy us or uttering the words that so easily fly from our mouth, instead of feeding or nourishing the thoughts of aversion or intolerance, we practice restraint. Instead of writing a note to that irritating yogi, you know, suggesting how they might improve themselves, we practice restraint. And we do this out of mindfulness, and we do it out of love. Not berating ourselves, but being curious and interested in the mind of that moment. Is it helpful? Does it ease suffering? Is it healing? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. We practice restraint in all the moments when we find ourselves inwardly sinking into bitterness or discontent or frustration with ourselves. Where else do we learn about patience and tolerance, perseverance and forbearance, except here in this territory of restraint? Restraint is a training in kindness for our own well-being for the well-being of all beings. First, it takes effort. We remind ourselves over and over again. With practice, it becomes effortless. The second step in this training of the first great precept in loving-kindness is to protect, to reach out, to extend ourselves, to reach out to touch another with appreciation, with support, to reach out with the words that are loving, that are kind, the small touches and the small gestures that teach us to cross those boundaries between self and other, to protect the small creatures, those we love, those we don't know, and those that we are uncomfortable with. 
Know what in our thoughts and our words and in our acts we are nourishing. The third step in this is really a combination of the two. Restraint, protection, gives rise to a heart that is liberated from ill will. A heart that is naturally, instinctively, effortlessly compassionate and kind. Milarepa once said, he said, just as I would reach out with my hand to touch and to care for a wound in this body, why would I not reach out with my hand to touch and care for a wound in another as part of this body? The effortlessness, the freedom from ill will is part of dissolving the sense of separation between self and other. Nisargadatta Maharaj once said, wisdom teaches me I am nothing and love teaches me I am everything. We have just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.